0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. James L.A. Webb about his 2014 book. The Long Struggle Against Malaria in Tropical Africa, published by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Webb is a research professor at Colby College. He's a pioneer in the field of historical epidemiology, and among other books and essays, is the author of A Global Global History of Health in Africa and co-editor of Humanity's Burden, A Global History of Malaria. Um, Dr. uh, Dr. Webb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could begin the interview by uh, by telling us uh, a little bit about
1: yourself. Sure. Uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1952 and uh, was the son of an organic chemist and uh, moved briefly to India in uh, 1967 uh, for most of a year of high school. And then came back to the United States, uh, dropped out of high school and worked for a number of years uh, in different professions, including um, landscape design and construction. Then I went back to university uh, in my early twenties and uh, studied at the Johns Hopkins university where I got my, uh, bachelor's degree, and my master's degree, and my PhD. So I kind of did all of my training at Johns Hopkins. And there I was really most influenced by uh, Professor Philip Curtin, who was a professor of history uh, in the Department of History, and who was a specialist in African history and uh, in world history. And so it was there that I really began studying with Philip Curtin. I first began to get interested in uh, African history, and I did my early studies in uh, West Africa and moved to West Africa uh, for a period of about five years or so uh, in the 1980s and wrote a book on the environmental history of West Africa in the 17th, 18th, and first half of 19th centuries. And then later, I uh, taught at the United Nations African Institute in Senegal and uh, worked for a number of years on a development project that was planning for the construction of dams on the Gambia River. And so it was a project that linked Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea, and Guinea-Bissau.
2: how do you come to be interested in uh, sort of epidemiology and and disease in Africa? I mean, uh, I guess, I mean, really looking at your uh, publication record, uh, there seems to be obviously an interest that that had been uh, in there for a while. And I know that uh, not knowing the the work of Philip Carton, he had obviously also started uh, some work in that area. So uh, Can you explain to us a little bit sort of the trajectory of how how that interest uh, came to develop into this particular book?
1: Yes, I can. Um, Back in the late 1980s, my wife and I and our children moved to uh, Sri Lanka, to the highlands, to Kandy. Um, And we were there for 18 months or so. I was directing a program for um, intercollegiate Sri Lankan education uh, based in the highlands and affiliated with the University of Pededinia, which is the flagship institution of the university system in Sri Lanka. So I was working on a book at that time on the ecological transformation of the highlands of Sri Lanka, which was in fact the largest process of tropical deforestation. In 19th century British Empire, but which had never been written about. And one of the phases of the decolonization of the highlands was an effort to plant out cinchona trees. And cinchona trees were uh, trees that had grown uh, originally in the highlands of South America, in the Andes, and had been transferred with limited success uh, to a number of different areas in the world. And the British were trying to get uh, cinchona established in India and uh, in, in Sri Lanka as well. The reason for this was that it was possible to extract from the bark of the cinchona trees a variety of different alkaloids, most famously, quinine, but also cinchonine, cinchonidine, quinidine, which are all more or less equally effective um, as an anti malarial medicine. And in fact, uh, quinine is often celebrated as the first disease specific drug in the Western Materia Medica. So, this was a kind of a large project um, in the highlands of Sri Lanka. At its height, there were about 64 million trees planted out, another 64 million saplings um, ready to be planted out in the highlands. And so for a brief period in the 1880s, Sri Lanka became the world's largest producer of cinchona alkaloids. This was significant because malaria was the single most uh, significant disease problem for European colonizers in the tropics. And so when Europeans tried to send uh, military men or missionaries or uh, administrators to the uh, tropical colonies, typically they uh, had to contend with malaria. And in some areas, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, it exacted a very high toll, also in South Asia. So there was a premium on... uh, producing enough of this anti-malarial drug to solve one of the one of the principal problems of empire. So I had worked on this problem, had written a book called Tropical Pioneers, uh, which was a study of the uh, transformation of the Sri Lankan highlands. And I was thinking about a next book, and I was thinking about writing a history of quinine, because at that point there hadn't been Uh, such a book written, and I thought it would be interesting to work on. I floated this idea with an editor at Cambridge, and he said to me that, well, what he would really like would be a, a global history of malaria rather than a history of quinine. He thought that that would have a larger audience and just kind of larger purchase. So I initially declined, saying that I didn't think that I was the person to undertake this and didn't feel like I had adequate training. But after a while, a short while, I thought, well, I should really investigate whether this would be a project that would be feasible for me. So I started reading some of the technical literature, uh, including a lengthy review article in Clinical Microbiology Reviews, which was a survey of what was known about Um, genetic mutations to malarial pressure. And at the end of this lengthy article, as is the case with most scientific articles of this type, there's a discussion section. And in the discussion section, there was an interpretation advanced of this uh, evidence of genetic mutation to malarial pressure. And the framing of this historically was quite outdated. It was using ideas in African history that were common about 1960 or so, and which had been uh, disproved by a generation or two of, of researchers in a variety of different uh, disciplines. So I thought this was quite intriguing, and I thought this is quite an impressive uh, representation of what's known about malarial pressure um, in Africa, but it can't possibly be interpreted uh, with this outdated framework. I wonder what this evidence actually means, and I wonder how it can be interpreted through a framework that's uh, consonant with what is known about the African past. So that kind of started me on a process of kind of the reinterpretation of the framing uh, of the microbiological evidence. And that took me into issues in the paleo epidemiology of African history and allowed me to begin to think about deeper processes in African history. Uh, before, uh, before the agricultural revolution, um, before the Bantu migrations and the like, that could be illuminated by this type of analysis that basically uh, involved the synthesis of scientific findings from a variety of different disciplines. That often were not in conversation with one another. So I ended up using materials from um, historical uh, lexicostatistics, from uh, archaeological botany, from physical archaeology, uh, from microbiology, and the like, trying to build understandings about the African past that were consilient with the findings in uh, these various disciplines. So that's, that was kind of my entrance into working in this field of historical epidemiology. And as I entered into it, it seemed to me that it was in fact a rather vast field of historical inquiry that uh, had yet to be adequately opened up. Uh, in good measure, because the challenges were somewhat daunting in that it involved gaining a familiarity um, with and a knowledge of certain scientific disciplines that I hadn't initially been trained in and being willing to advance ideas in conversations with colleagues in the sciences in order to refine ideas and discard uh, elements of interpretation that would not withstand challenge from those disciplines. So since that time, I have worked on the history of malaria really for a number of years. I wrote a book called Humanity's Burden, A Global History of Malaria. That uh, tried to give an overview of the impact of the various uh, malaria parasites on human history from very you know from early hominid times up through the present, and when I finished that book, I had begun to investigate the resources of the World Health Organization. And quite um, felicitously, I sent a letter of inquiry to an incoming archivist, chief archivist at the World Health Organization, inquiring if there were records uh, in Geneva about the efforts to control malaria in Africa. Because the dominant narrative had been that Africa had been excluded from the first great global malaria eradication program of the World Health Organization, 1955 to 1969. And yet I had come across a variety of different uh, types of evidence that suggested that there, in fact, had been very significant efforts at malaria control and at trying to develop eradication protocols for malaria in tropical Africa. So I wrote to the WHO and received a very positive response that, yes, there were uh, voluminous records um, in Geneva. And so I decided to make uh, an initial research trip. I was lucky in that I was the first person Uh, admitted to the parasitological archives of the World Health Organization. Previously, our first researcher, external researcher, previously uh, those records had been available only to uh, people who worked uh, within the World Health Organization. And with a new archivist coming in, the policy had changed. So I spent uh, months in the archives at the WHO, And going through a very extensive collection of materials related to malaria control in Africa. And at that point, I was beginning to realize that it would be a good idea to write a history of malaria uh, and malaria control in tropical Africa because the tide was turning uh, in terms of global health politics. And it was clear that there was increasing interest in trying to control malaria in tropical Africa. And as I was writing the book, of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation uh, committed itself to uh, a new program of eradication, now restyled as elimination, but a program of global uh, malaria eradication. And so it seemed to me that the experience of the earlier campaigns in Africa uh, in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. And in fact, the entire run um, of the historical record of malaria control in Africa, dating from the late 19th century right up to the present, would uh, be useful to marshal for students interested in global health, people actually working in malaria control uh, and people who were who were training in in malariology
2: um, and um, so uh, this is a good set way to sort of just get started with the uh, substance of the book. Uh, <clears throat> obviously it, it would be interesting to hear uh, apart from the fact that, like you said, the narrative was um, that Africa had not been part of these first uh, eradication campaigns. Uh, did, uh, did looking at these new records or, or focusing, this, uh, this focus in Africa, uh, obviously uh, m- uh, helped you uh, find what was unique or what was uh, special about uh, malaria in Africa as compared to its sort of global history and and you obviously try to explain some of that in in an introduction to african malaria the the introduction to the book could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, that very specific context in which malaria uh, affects africa
1: sure uh, well african malaria is different the african malarial environment I should say Uh, is different from malarial environments elsewhere in the world. There are five types of, uh, five species of malarial parasite that can infect human beings. And two are just kind of predominant in the world. One is called VIVAX, and it is the most common form of malaria in the world. It's what we used to have. Uh, predominantly, for example, in the United States of America. And the other uh, major form is called falciparum malaria. And so their full names are plasmodium vivax and plasmodium falciparum. So in many areas of the world, uh, in the northern climes, vivax uh, is predominant in the middle latitudes and some subtropical areas, and in some tropical areas, you have a mix of 5 and falciparum along with the other minor forms, typically ovale and malariae. But in tropical Africa, you don't have this same mix. About 95% or so, 90 to 95% of all malarial infections in Africa are falciparum. Well, the reason that this is significant is that falciparum is the most dangerous form of malaria. Vivax will make you very sick. Untreated, Vivax might kill one or two or so percent of the population um, afflicted. It's a serious disease. It's been a serious burden to human communities. But it's very different than falciparum. So that falciparum, when it infects communities that do not have any acquired immunity to it, so people are getting it for the first or second or third time, can exact a very heavy toll it can exact mortality on the order of 20% or sometimes considerably higher. So it's an extremely dangerous form of malaria, the most dangerous form in the world. So that's a big difference right there. Africa has a predominantly um, falciparum-saturated malarial environment. Another aspect of what's really different about African malaria is that Africa has species of anopheline mosquitoes. Now, the anopheline mosquitoes, that's the genus that carries malaria. These are the only types of mosquitoes, only genus of mosquitoes that transmits malaria uh, to human beings. And there may be as many as Seventy or more species globally that can transmit malaria, but most of these species in most areas of the world are not very good at it. And in technical parlance, they're said to be, you know, not competent. Their levels of competency in transmitting the parasite are very low. But in Africa. The species of anopheline mosquitoes that transmit malaria Anopheles gambi, sensus strictu, Anopheles arabiensis, Anopheles funestus. These are the most dangerous anopheline mosquitoes in the world because they are highly competent. Part of what this means is they themselves, when they take up the malarial parasite through biting and infected, person or an infected um, animal, can uh, tolerate it very well. Many mosquitoes will get sick when they're actually harboring the parasite, and it may shorten their life, and they may not be able to live long enough actually to transmit it. Uh, But this isn't the case for the African anophiline mosquitoes. So they're very well adapted to the parasite. They're highly Uh, competent mosquito vectors. So that's another dimension of it. So we have the worst kind of parasite and the most competent mosquito vectors. And then, of course, in a lot of areas in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the temperatures are warm enough that you can have, um, not in all areas, in some areas you have seasonal transmission, but in many areas you have year-round transmission. So this means that the burden of malaria in tropical Africa is simply higher than it is anywhere else in the world. And for this reason, you have had for enormously long periods of time, we think tens and tens of thousands of years, you've had very significant levels of malarial infection, which have exacted a toll on human communities, typically killing the younger people, particularly children and young children and infants whose immune systems have not fully developed. So this has been a very heavy burden, and this malarial pressure has, over enormously long periods of time, selected for certain genetic variations or certain genetic mutations that accord some level of protection against malarial infection. One of these variations is something called Duffy, for short, Duffy Antigen Negativity. It's a variation in an antigen on the surface of the hemoglobin molecule. And it is a, a mutation that protects the hemoglobin from being invaded By the VIVAX malaria parasite. If we look at a map of the distribution and the prevalence of this genetic mutation, Duffy antigen negativity, it is exceedingly high. Uh, It is on the order of 97 to 98% of the population in Western and West Central Africa carry this mutation. What this means is that it's not possible to have an environment that you have in other tropical areas and you have in many other areas of the world of a mixed vivax and falciparum environment. The prevalence of this genetic uh, variation has excluded vivax from um, the parasite mosaic and into that abandoned territory has expanded falciparum, which is why you have just such an enormously high uh, distribution of falciparum parasites in sub-Saharan Africa. So there's something very distinctive about African malaria, and it has to do with the type of parasite, the competency of the vectors, and the existence of some genetic variations or mutations which have changed the mix of malarial parasites. One question what might be, well, hasn't falciparum malaria also produced this type of malarial pressure? Aren't there genetic mutations that are associated with falciparum pressure? And the answer is absolutely yes. And so, we have a range of hemoglobin mutations one of which is probably easily recognized by listeners to this program, which would be sickle cell. So that sickle cell is a mutation of the hemoglobin molecule, which makes it less able to accommodate the falciparum parasite. And so if you get the sickle cell gene from one parent, but not from the other parent, so you're heterozygous for sickle cell, it protects you very considerably from the worst consequences of falciparum infection. If you carry the sickle cell mutation, your chances of dying from a falciparum infection, even as an infant or a young child, th- those chances are reduced by about 90%. So it's a very, very significant level of protection. And there are a range of other hemoglobin uh, mutations as well that provide protection against falciparum. But the downside is that if you get the sickle cell mutation from both parents, and so you're homozygous for it, you have a lot of health problems and you have sickle cell disease. And in an era before effective treatment, this typically meant that if you were unfortunate enough to get the sickle cell from both parents, your ch- the chances were not very good that you would survive to the age of sexual maturity. So it was a very heavy cost that borne by populations that Um, We're inheriting this. um, We're living with the possibility of this kind of dual inheritance of genes from both parents for sickle cell.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Um, yeah, and so to this uh, history, I mean, I I, I find it uh, the structure in which you you start t- uh, telling this history of like the uniqueness of how malaria sort of evolved in in Africa. Then you follow this t- uh, with uh, two chapters in which you start looking at. Um, what starts happening when when humans start to try to interfere uh, with with malaria, and you you start with uh, first the Europeans arriving and and trying to deal with their own vulnerability, and, and later with uh, how Africans had dealt with this issue of immunity? Could you speak to these two chapters and and explain to us sort of the the interaction of that longer history of the malaria parasite in Africa? with uh, uh, both European and African ways of trying to deal with it?
1: Certainly. Well, the big story, I think, um, is that African peoples who were living in malarial environments suffered considerable childhood death and, mor- uh, and morbidity as a result of this disease environment. But typically what happened was and happens today is that if you survive the early bouts with falciparum malaria and you get bitten reasonably frequently so that your immune system has to rise to the occasion, you acquire an immunity Falciparum malaria. It's not perfect. You could get bitten and you could feel sick. You might feel like you had the flu. You might feel really bad. Uh, You might feel like you had a bad cold or were just under the weather. Or if your immune system was really robust and had been challenged frequently, you might get bitten by a mosquito carrying falciparum malaria and not have any um, disease symptoms whatsoever. So this was pretty common in many areas in Sub-Saharan Africa to have for adults and for older children to have an effective acquired immunity to malaria, so that almost all the costs, almost all the sickness, almost all the death associated with malaria, or much of it, was concentrated in the under five. Year old population. So, Europeans, when they began to uh, try to colonize Sub Saharan Africa in the late 19th century, and up to this time, of course, European presence in Sub Saharan Africa had been very slight. Europeans had formed temporary settlements in many areas along the coast but very few permanent settlements in part because they were, Europeans were coming as adults into an African malarial environment and were suffering very high levels of death. And this was true kind of into the early colonial period. Um, I, I used to work in the Gambia and the capital of the Gambia um, uh, today it's called Banjul, used to be called Bathurst. And, um, in this area, one of the old neighborhoods, which was, uh, settled for colonial administrators was known as Half Dye. And the reason was, uh, that Europeans who came down and were sent into the Gambia faced this really formidable challenge of malaria and some other, uh, Tropical pathogens and up to half died. So <clears throat> during the course of their um, tour. So this fact of European vulnerability, uh, in conjunction with African immunity, acquired immunity, set up one of the most important kind of historical dynamics in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, initially, Europeans didn't understand that Africans, in fact, were susceptible to malaria. They were in areas where many people, adults, had uh, high levels of immunity. And so Europeans uh, thought that they were the ones who who got malaria and that they got malaria from each other and really paid little attention to uh, to African health generally, but to the issue of African malaria, when Europeans began to uh, under began to know that malaria was spread by mosquitoes and that it was possible to intervene yeah, by using a barrier technique of sleeping under a mosquito net and taking anti-malarial medicines like. Uh, quinine or other cinchona alkaloids, um, they learned that they could protect themselves to a limited degree from malaria. And then they discovered that Africans, and particularly African children who were in the kind of early stages of fighting off uh, falciparum parasites and developing an immune response, had very high levels of the parasites in their blood. And so Europeans came to consider Africans as very dangerous to their health. And this was the origin of the European policy of residential segregation. Europeans came to the view that in order to protect their own health, it would be necessary to live in a different area from the Africans with whom they were trading, or trying to convert, or during the colonial period, uh, trying to rule. And so they set up, where they could, uh, separate environments, uh, separate neighborhoods, sometimes at elevation, because they then realized it would if it, you could move up to a certain uh, elevation above ground level or sea level, then you could sometimes live above the flight range of the mosquitoes. This is the origin, interestingly, of the idea of the White Highlands, like the White Highlands of Kenya, the White Highlands of Malawi, and so forth. These were areas that were considered to be safe for Europeans because they were above the malarial lowlands and kind of midlands. If you move to a high enough altitude, you could be safe. So this dynamic of this conception based in biological reality that Europeans who were non-immunes moving to Africa were at heightened vulnerability and Africans who had survived the initial childhood challenges had some level of immunity uh, to malaria was kind of central to understanding the history of malaria in Africa.
2: And can you speak? um, So, as we move through the uh, uh, through uh, towards the end of the colonial period, uh, you mentioned already the 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 World Health Organization eradication campaign that I think you mentioned went from 1950 to 1965. And and like you said, uh, a lot of the uh, the the main tools that were tried in this uh, first uh, first uh, uh, world campaign um so focused on on uh, on trying to control the vectors uh the mosquitoes and the population um and uh, like, like you said this is this is something that that initially sort of um europeans um dealt with um uh, can you can you speak a little bit more about how th- those uh, initial insights uh that that uh, that were gained through throughout the colonial period? Uh, fed into this first eradication campaign?
1: Surely. Up until the Second World War, malaria control in Africa had been focused largely in urban areas or on plantations or in mining areas that were considered to be of particular economic significance. The reason for this was that malaria control was quite expensive. Typically, it involved spraying um, chemical on mosquito breeding grounds so that the techniques of control were to try and destroy mosquito larvae and the larvicides were used. There was one famous one called Paris Green, uh, which is probably the most famous larvicide in in history, and it was used extensively uh, in these specific sites within Africa, types of sites. Everything changed uh, during the course of the Second World War, because during the Second World War, particularly in the uh, Italian campaigns, the Allies discovered uh, an an insecticide, a residual insecticide that was extremely effective against insects. Uh, It was uh, used against lice uh, that were spreading typhus in the war-torn areas. And then it was discovered, well, it worked just as well against mosquitoes and a variety of other pests so that By 1944 or 1945, um, the Allies were producing DDT for use in war areas and also to protect, for example, American troops uh, in West Africa. Because in Liberia, for example, the Americans had an air base that uh, was used to fly uh, material across the Sahara to reprovision the North African campaigns. And that the pilots on these planes uh, were subject to malaria when they were living in West Africa. And the Americans discovered that they could pretty much shut down this problem of pilots getting malaria and on occasion crashing their aircraft uh, into the Sahara uh, by, by using uh, DDT as a spray. So by the end of the war, there was increasing enthusiasm for what was called indoor residual spraying, or IRS. And the idea was that if you could spray the inside walls of a house and furniture and the like so that when mosquitoes came in and alit uh, on the walls uh, before or after biting you, um, they would pick up enough of this insecticide in their feet that would kill them either right away or in a short enough time that they would not live long enough to go on and bite another person. So there was a tremendous enthusiasm for using indoor residual spraying, and also, in fact, using it as a larvicide as well. It had, had even broader uses. But using these residual insecticides, most famously DDT, to try and shut down the transmission of malaria. And it was thought that it would be possible before resistance to DDT emerged to perhaps carry out a really massive spraying campaign that would simply eliminate malaria, which had been the most significant health burden historically for human beings. And the World Health Organization considered it to be the most significant health problem of humanity in the aftermath of the Second World War. So... Uh, After a period of experimentation in the late 1940s and 1950s, in 1955, the World Health Organization decided to embark upon a global malaria eradication campaign. Uh, This was broadly successful in that it reduced malarial infections and deaths and sickness by a full order of magnitude. So reduced it by 90% in many areas of the world where it was used. And in some areas, they actually achieved eradication locally, for example, uh, on the island of Taiwan. In sub-Saharan Africa, there had been efforts to try and develop protocols for sub-Saharan Africa that would eradicate malaria. In 1950, the World Health Organization had convened a special conference on malaria in equatorial Africa in Kampala, Uganda. There had been discussion at great length and it was in quite, in fact, a a very uh, bitter conference in that the malariologists who were there broke into two camps and some thought that it was a moral imperative to begin to use DDT to try and control um, African malaria, and others thought that this was simply um, not feasible and should not be undertaken. At length, um, the World Health Organization decided to embark on a large number of pilot projects in areas in basically all of the ecological zones of Africa, because they realized There are many different mosquito vectors, nuffling vectors. Uh, There are many different environments in which malaria is being uh, transmitted. What will work in a rainforest area will not, in all likelihood, work in a savanna area. So they developed uh, pilot projects throughout the continent that ultimately ran for several years and achieved a high level of control of malaria. And they were able to drop malaria rates by 98%, or 99%. They could keep hammering the uh, mosquitoes and they could get the levels very low, but they could not succeed in getting to zero. They then decided uh, that they would try and combine indoor residual spraying with the use of anti-malarial drugs at a population level, what was called mass drug administration. The idea was that everybody in these pilot zones would be dosed with an anti-malarial medicine. So not only were you going to go after the mosquitoes, vector control, but you were also going to go after the parasites in what was called the human reservoir. So there were experiments uh, with mass drug administration using a variety of different drugs. Uh, some worked pretty well, some didn't. Um, Pyramethamine was used for a while. It worked really well, but produced resistance within about a year or so. Uh, chloroquine was used for a while, and it also produced really good results and didn't uh, present the problem of resistance. That the parasites had formed, for example, to pyrimethamine. So, this worked really well. But even in combination with indoor residual spraying, mass drug administration couldn't get the numbers down to zero. They could not actually completely stop malaria transmission. And so, when they decided, after lengthy trials, that they really couldn't get to zero, they abandoned the projects. And this had some unintended consequences because people who had been living in and living within a so-called protected area for a number of years and hadn't been getting bitten by malaria-carrying mosquitoes and their immune systems hadn't been bolstered by this challenge, um, saw that their acquired immunities had degraded. And so in the aftermath of these projects, in some areas, if they had been successful, ironically, long enough, the people who had had acquired immunity had lost it or had lost most of it. And so when malaria came back and was resurgent, it had more severe consequences for the adults than they would have suffered had there been no malaria control or eradication effort whatsoever. And this is part of a long pattern of control and lapse in control that characterizes really the whole history of um efforts to eradicate or control malaria in tropical Africa
2: um, and and for instance i mean i I, th- I, f- I found this particular um pattern that you mentioned very very intriguing especially as you trace trace it through the uh the post colonial period you know you you first in into chapter four you talk about um basically how there's a significant uh, neglect of the malarial problem um uh, by uh, post colonial governments uh, independent governments um uh, but how to some extent chloroquine was uh, the use of chloroquine was able to sort of hold and the infections down to some to some extent but that it was only sort of the prelude to the this massive resurgence in the 80s and 90s um, and to some extent, how it was also just compounded by, you know, HIV and and other diseases that uh, sort of took the opportunity that HIV allowed for for malaria to 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 emerge to to um, to research like tuberculosis, uh, so. It, How do you see uh, these patterns sort of playing in, in sort of uh, the 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 emergence of a new campaign like the one that you were mentioning at the beginning of our conversation? uh, What we have seen more recently: the renewed interest in trying to deal with malaria. Uh, Sort of uh, how this. uh, You mentioned something at the end of your book that you said: on the one hand, we could see. the the current efforts sort of trying replicating some of the errors of the previous efforts. But on the other hand, there's some things that have significantly changed. So can you tell us a little bit what has changed and how is it that the, the experiences uh, through this uh, post-colonial period um, may explain or not what has changed?
1: Sure. Well, if we look at the long run of uh, malaria control um, since independence in sub-Saharan Africa beginning in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, you do have um, in the aftermath of the unsuccessful WHO-led campaigns for malaria control, you do have a relative lack of interest on the part of African governments who uh, see that the earlier programs were not Um, sustainable and who uh, wish to make investments largely in economic development in order to kind of move their economies out of um, a colonial or near colonial status and develop uh, more well-rounded economies that they feel will be a base for political independence. Um, This is Feasible, in a sense, as you were saying, because chloroquine, which is uh, one of the perhaps the uh, miracle drugs of the 20th century, is uh, widely available in sub-Saharan Africa in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and uh, 1990s. Um, it is possible to buy chloroquine in basically every rural village, every town. Um, every city, and it's extremely inexpensive. Um, Typically, uh, Africans who are being challenged by, you know, malarial infections uh, from time to time are not so interested in clearing the infection, which is something that Westerners try to do when we take anti-malarials. They're interested in trying to just feel better and trying to reduce the parasite load so that they don't feel sick. They may still have parasites uh, in their blood, but they're not necessarily feeling sick because they have an acqu- some level of acquired immunity. So by the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s, you have um, lower levels, we think, of childhood mortality because children can also be dosed um, with chloroquine. And you still have a lot of malarial deaths, but it's not as severe as it had been uh, before the pre-chloroquine era. However, by the late 1980s and into the 1990s, you have the beginnings of chloroquine resistance in sub-Saharan Africa. You've previously had it uh, in Southeast Asia, where it emerges um, you know, along the border of, kind of Thailand and uh, Cambodia, and it makes its way eventually to East Africa, and it spreads from East Africa across the continent. So by the 1990s, uh, chloroquine is much less effective than it has been in earlier decades, and you start to get this resurgence of malaria. And at that point, African heads of state and the WHO, alerted to this problem, tried to develop new programs. And they developed a program called Roll Back Malaria, and this will eventually be uh, further supported by the Global Fund uh, for tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV, which will infuse uh, a lot of monies um, into the anti-malarial campaigns in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are some new tools that are being um, rolled out. There are insecticide-treated bed nets. Well, before this time, uh, there were bed nets, and there were insecticides that were used for indoor residual spraying in urban or mining or plantation areas. But this is a a new uh, biomedical tool, and it is the insecticide-treated net. Now, it's a different kind of insecticide. It's one that's safe for human beings. Um, It's based on synthetic pyrethroids as opposed to uh, DDT or BHC or dieldrin or some of the other um, insecticides that were used for indoor residual spraying. And so the idea is that it will be possible to roll out... uh, Insecticide treated bed nets across the continent, and that this will be an effective intervention. This is one tool. Uh, we have other tools now, too. We have um, rapid diagnostic um, tests that allow um, nurses in clinics, for example, to determine if a person who's coming in and who has fever and headache and other symptoms, which could be malaria or could be any one of a number of other uh, illnesses, is in fact malaria and should be treated with anti-malarial medicine. So this is a very useful tool in kind of targeting the new uh, medicines, because we now have another new tool which is a new class of anti-malarial medicines based on a a natural drug um, called artemisinin. And we have artemisinin now being used in combination with some other drugs and something which is called artemisinin combination therapy. So the question is, well, what is going to be the impact of these new tools in combination with the old tools, because the old tools are also being used. We are using DDT uh, very widely. We are using other classes of um, insecticides, synthetic uh, insecticides, for indoor residual spraying. We're rolling out bed nets, and uh, we are trying to treat people as possible with Artemis and combination therapies. And we have seen good progress um, during the course of the first decade of this uh, century and into the second decade of this century. Um, we don't have any agreement really on the numbers or what the best methodology for actually estimating the decline in deaths in sub-Saharan Africa, but everybody agrees that it's been substantial. may have been on the order of 50%, and it's been very substantial. But for the last several years, uh, progress has stalled. And in some areas, uh, the numbers of infections have risen. So that it's now clear that we almost certainly... Um, will not be able to interrupt malaria transmission in sub-Saharan Africa in most areas um, in the short term or probably the medium term. And so this raises questions of the extent to which this older pattern of lapse and control will obtain. And uh, the evidence is not in on that yet, and I think we'll have to wait and see. It may well be that the efforts at control have been less successful this time around with the paradoxical benefit that many people's acquired immunity will not have been compromised.
2: And that brings me to my last question, um, which I think is like the, the the main one of the main questions that you raise in the book, which is um, you talk about a, an ethical sort of uh, need to think about how to factor in uh, acquired immunity uh, and when thinking in in ways of controlling or, or even eradicating. I think. Uh, you know, like the dangers that that poses, and how we have been, uh, or there has been very little thought and factoring in acquired immunity when thinking about long term or short term treatments uh, of malaria. Um, so, have you seen more in terms of uh, thinking about uh, of, of policymakers thinking about acquired immunity when thinking about policies?
1: I have not um, seen that this issue has been taken up. And I think that, in part, it reflects a kind of disconnect between uh, what we might call the global north and the global south. Uh, Much of the global health campaigning is predicated on the idea that all lives are of equal value, and that the life of a child is Uh, kind of equal to the life of an adult. In terms of lived human experience, this has not been the case for the entire run of human history. And most human communities have lived with relatively high rates of childhood mortality. And sad as it is, it has been the case for much of our time as a species that an adult human had a greater value, an economic force, um, than a child, and so the, I think that the relatively um, smaller number of adults who would be affected by the loss of acquired immunity and the consequent uh, severe illness or death is not something that uh, figures into calculations because the larger um, kind of calculus suggests still that there will be many savings in human lives. So it's a it's a complicated uh, and, I think, uh, kind of ethically fraught area, and it's one that needs to be interrogated not simply by people from the global North, but by African communities that may potentially be um, confronted with this ethical dilemma.
2: Yeah, and and like you mentioned too, it's. A, I mean, it should be part of uh, of uh, broader uh, understanding of just like the the infrastructure that allows all these tools to be deployed. Uh, at any given moment, I mean, you talk about how both urbanization and continued bouts of conflict throughout the continent uh, have gone in the way of, of, of the, some of the progress that, that that could be made, and obviously having uh, wide networks of of healthcare and distribution, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, would have to also be taken into account if if we if this um, issue were to be thought about. More carefully. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to add um, to the questions that I've had asked, or is that, has, have I missed anything?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I, yeah. you know, appreciate, I appreciate the possibility to, to talk about the book and about African malaria more generally. And I, I think it's a, you know, a very important uh, contemporary issue. And it's one that we gain really useful um, insights on. By the study of its uh, of past efforts at control, and this is why I think that this field of historical epidemiology is really important for uh, people who are actively engaged with contemporary disease challenges that there are many important lessons from the past, and that we can only know them by studying them.
2: yeah, I agree um well. Could you tell us a little bit uh, what are you working on
1: at this moment? Sure. Um, I've just finished a book on the um, global history of infectious intestinal disease. So I have a book which is in production right now called The Guts of the Matter, uh, A Global History of Human Waste and infectious intestinal disease uh, that will be coming out from Cambridge University Press, I think, in 2020. And it's, uh, it's an effort to try and understand what is uh, the oldest environmental problem uh, that we've had, and one that has had an enormous impact on constraining uh, human population growth up until very recent times.
2: Oh, wow. Um, And and this one you meant, this one's not restricted just to Africa, but it's uh, more
1: globally oriented. Right. It's like humanity's burden. It's a global history.
2: Oh, okay. Well, that sounds um, like a great project. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. We definitely look forward to that. I hope we can have it on the podcast too. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, thank you so much uh, for being, uh, talking to us today. Uh, I really enjoyed it and um, um, I'll say goodbye now. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Swimsuit. Check. Sunscreen. Check. Phone charger. Check.